Welcome to Trust Your Body podcast. We will discuss teams from embodiment to mental health and explore how enhancing trust and building the relationship you have with your body will guide you towards finding the answers that you seek. I'm your host, Anthony Claffey, and I will interview people from various walks of life to share their knowledge and wisdom they have gained on their personal journeys. We will share how you can learn to listen to your body, understand what it's saying, and by learning to trust it, you can transform your life. So welcome back to the podcast. We are here today with Vincent Viss. Vincent is an international teacher. He is a coach and a movement and floor work expert, and he travels the world teaching workshops and educating people on movement with their bodies. He is also one of the people who taught me how to learn handstand, um, which I think is pretty cool. And he's also a very, very good friend of mine. So Vincent, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. So first question that I ask everyone, Vincent, is what does it mean for you to trust your body? I think the first way I could answer that would be trusting your body in the way I work with bodies, my own and my students, would be developing a harmonious relationship with what you can and what you can't do at one specific point in time. So listening to the signals that your body is sending you would be, for me, the first step in trusting your body. That's the way I would approach it. Um, if I talk about training, for instance, but I, I really think it just applies to any kind of era in your life. But talking about training, I would say trusting your body is listen, just paying attention to the very subtle cues that you may ignore when you're trying to push through things, when you're trying to achieve a goal without taking stocks of where you are at, without noticing all the compensations you may have developed through the years without even admitting to yourself and acknowledging that you may have emotional or physical traumas that are hindering your progress. And instead of pausing and wondering why you are facing a plateau in any kind of training, it can be skill training, but I think it also applies to strength training or mobility training. Mm. Um, instead of doing that, we just push through. We just go for the next workshop, the next person that knows better, the next program that we can download on the internet. And then we wonder why either at the very best we don't progress, but at the very worst we get injured. Mm. And so, I mean, that's part of my own journey around, because I've made these mistakes as well a few years ago, haven't we all in some ways? Uh, but my... But my teaching now revolves around this understanding that if something is not working the way you think it was supposed to, then maybe there is a point in changing the way you're doing things. Mm. And I was actually, uh, I actually discovered that the whole quote about insanity is not, uh, is actually misattributed. We don't know where it came from. So the whole doing the same things again and again and again and expecting different results is the definition of insanity is not, is actually made up apparently and everybody quotes it on social media, but it's not, yeah. it's not a thing. But I still think, I still think there is relevance in that. And um, yeah, it's just like, as I would, as I would say to my students, there's also a part of um, us being smart in the way we invest our time and I mean I'm 
a full-time teacher and in a way I also am a full-time mover and even with all this time in my hands I wouldn't have enough hours in a day to just uh, train as much as I think I should and so when you are a full-time adult with a job and sometimes a partner sometimes kids sometimes other hobbies and responsibilities why on earth should you should you go for the least productive and efficient ways of training? That doesn't make any sense. And to me, if you're not listening to your body, therefore, if you're not trusting your body, then you're just not efficient in the way you train. You're just wasting your time, pretty much. Yeah. So that's you running in, running in circles, really. Yeah. yeah. And and then being frustrated by something that should really provide you with joy in the first place. Yeah, I love that. I mm. love that. Um, I attended your. Um, you did a seven day challenge and it was a program for you to develop a model for how people can learn a handstand. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I noticed in your teaching was you call it the smart method. Mm-hmm. And I noticed how you incorporated listening to your body and you used um, like the hero and the villain as a descripting factor for people to learn. Mm-hmm. Um and it's something I've seen you do over the years is incorporate this type of mindset, if you want to call it that, into your teaching. Was that always there or is it something that you developed over the years? And is there a reason that you decided to incorporate it more now as you've evolved into the teacher that you are? Well, let's say I, I, I call that reframing. And part of reframing is making analogies that would strike a chord in the people who hear it. And the point of a, the point of reframing to me is for people to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. And at a very basic level, I think that when you are pursuing a given skill, you should both know, you should both think about, you should both, I would say, understand it intellectually and then embody it. And for me, embodying would be practicing it mindfully. Um, the, and the, sometimes I have the feeling that people just, again, in this whole pushing through mindset, they don't ask question. And again, that's not efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, so reframing forces me to find ways to penetrate their intellectual understanding of what they're doing, making sure that they develop some form of critical thinking over the program they received. Because that's something we tend to relinquish the moment somebody comes to us with a high status or any kind of credentials. Reframing, to answer your question, I've done that uh, since I've started teaching, which would have been when I was in university teaching on the side, uh, Spanish and English classes actually to French people. And I was trying to find rules or shortcuts, what I would like to call them catalysts for people to pass the tests. Because the tests really had nothing to do with uh, being able to fluently speak in any language. They had everything to do with you knowing what's expected from you and um, understanding the grammar behind the languages you were trying to learn. And the way these rules were explained in books was not efficient. It was just overwhelming for most of the students I was working with. And therefore, I started to make that a bit more fun, a bit more friendly for these younger people, for them to just understand 
to make a, a game out of it. And suddenly I realized that their grades just improved uh, drastically and I realized the power of reframing. And ever since then, a few years later, uh, handstands and movement and acrobatics came into my life and I uh, moved from doing this on the side to teaching it. And I mean, this whole realization, the whole power of reframing was made even more obvious to me. So, but again, there's only so far you can go if you only understand things intellectually and it's only so far you can go if you go for volume with your body in the case of a handstand kicking up against the wall again and again and again without ask, asking yourself why it's not working in the first place. So I think it's just a harmonious relationship you have to develop between what you're doing with your body and how you're construing what you're doing with your body in the first place. Mm -hmm. And the result you get in one feeds the other. And so there's a constant back and forth that you have to do that doesn't have to be um, overwhelming or exhausting, but just that just informs the next steps you want to take in your training. But again, I also really think that training in that situation is a metaphor for uh, what we can do in the rest of our lives. Mm. Mm. Um, so in the case of the H7 challenge, which was only a few weeks ago, um, the way in, one of the analogies we've used is the wild horse. And I've heard these kind of analogies be made by a psychologist who is, whose name is uh, Jonathan Haidt. And I would butcher the name of the book, but it's something that's called the happiness hypothesis, I think. And it describes the relationship between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind, which really to me is at the core of understanding intellectually what you're doing and then listening to the signals your body is sending you. And he says the conscious mind is the rider and the subconscious mind would be the elephant. And just to, just to make it very simple, just to make the power relationship at play here very obvious and very simple. If you try to sway an elephant out of the path that it has decided to go on, you will lose that battle. And you actually risk uh, losing this battle so hard that you get you may just get injured. You may just in, the elephant just may throw you off balance of its back, and then good luck for uh, surviving that. And it's exactly the same thing that happens with our bodies. If we try to push through, then again we're just opening the door to injuries. Mm. Um, and so I used the analogy of a wild horse because it was funny, it was relatable, and I had loads of image to loads of images to. Uh, illustrate it and I was saying to people you have to start understanding that your subconscious is constantly your body your subconscious your brain whatever name you want to use really is constantly sending you signals over what it is comfortable with you doing and what it's not and one of the first thing we have to do is to make peace with the fact that we may not just be able to do what we think we are able to do mm -hmm. for any kind of reasons and then there's such a rabbit hole of exploration to be pursued into uh, you understanding why your body is refusing that in the first place, which is something that was uh, made really obvious to me with all the anatomy in motion work, mm. really, and the sessions I have taken with you, where you just realize that your body is overreacting to something that seems so simple. And when you get to experience that first hand, when you're, I'm going to 
oversimplify this, unfortunately, because my knowledge of that is not <laughs> deep enough. But if my arm gets twisted to the left side ever so slightly and my body starts shaking and that's enough for my body to start going into what I would call the red zone, uh, imagine what is happening uh, in your brain when you kick up against a wall or when you kick up for standing and your brain is hijacking any attempt uh, uh, that you take to get there. Like obviously, obviously there's value in us just stopping the moment we can realize and recognize that the body is, sending us, is saying something to us and pay attention there and then uh, inform our next action upon that. Mm. So the whole education part of my teaching in general and specifically that challenge was revolving around me trying to make people and reframing things in such a way that people would realize how important it was for them to listen to their well horse or their mm. brain or their body. And again, I invite people to reframe in a different way that speaks to them even better because that's part of how we learn. Just find your own words if needs be, but, uh, but don't understand that there is no, you're not going to win this battle. And it's not even a battle in the first place. Why are you trying to push through? Yeah. This, this is, you want to develop something harmonious. Yeah. And then, and then just make peace that we, you may just not progress as fast as you wish, as fast as social media wants to, as fast as your ego wants to. There is a whole learning curve here as well. Yeah. Um, that's even more true with acrobatics and what, yeah. Yeah. I, I resonate with so much of what you said. Um, it's like you brought me through my whole history. <laughs> just listening to you. It's, it's like part of your education and teaching is ultimately about people becoming more aware of themselves and you offering a reframing of how they can work with themselves to build their own syllabus or a language with themselves. When you, because I've watched you do your floor work, um, it's phenomenal, by the way, for people who listen. Um, and I'll, I'll put the show notes of how you can get in touch with Vincent um, online. And if you just check out his YouTube channel, you'll be um, in awe of what he's capable of doing. Um, but when I've watched you, it's how you move across a floor without being the elephant. Or you move across the floor. And I'll use the word graceful because if it's like there's no sound. When you're when you're watching and it's, it's very captivating to see that that the physical body is capable of doing something like this even though you're in an environment where i can actually hear you but i can't hear you mm -hmm. and i can see everything you're doing um and there's there's um yes you are the person moving your body but there's almost a moment where it's taking over and there's an automation happening in i'll call it a sequence of how you move one, do you agree with that in the first place, as opposed to the first question? But do you see, feel, experience that happening in your body when, when you're in that, that those moments of uh, letting go and my body just starts to take over because it's it starts to learn something and it's a way of it being able to express itself? Well, I suppose flow work at the, it can be understood as a form of dance and in any or more broadly as a form of physical expression and when you have developed some form of mastery which itself is already a debate but some vocabulary we can say then anytime you manage to let go which 
is not always easy, you start going into these flow states and this is where uh, this is where one can start to lose themselves, but also from an audience perspective, things it's just obvious when people start losing themselves in that way. They, they just become freer in the way they express uh, what's inside. And, and, and it's noticeable when somebody is a, in a flow state versus when somebody is overthinking what should come next. And part of the learning curve comes in you not chasing the flow state in the first place, and you not chasing gracefulness. What I really like about flow work is that I've never been big or into uh, the, what I would call the ornament part of dancing. And actually, I was reluctant to use the word dance in the first place for many years. Um, what I like about flow work is that, not to say there's anything anything wrong with it, it's just this this ornament part of it was not was was not the the thing that was attracting attract, attracting me sorry mm. what was what as you described the sensation of floating or flowing or the very watery nature of somebody who moves on the floor when it's done right and what i realized is that the beauty of this art is when you are biomechanically efficient, you are graceful. And so grace is predicated by your capacity to move with efficiency on the floor. Just abiding by the golden rules of physics. When you do that, then you become graceful. If you want to add some fluff on top of that, good. But if you do not follow these rules, which are, which you cannot, they're just as real as gravity, then you won't be graceful. Mm. So grace, the sensation of grace that can be perceived by yourself as you move or by someone who's watching you is actually a filter to know whether or not you are being efficient. And, and that's really what I like about it because then no matter whether or not you are into dance or into the broader world of movements, you can find something there. You can make your dance better by being more efficient or you can just chase efficiency and end up being graceful. Mm. There's a huge strength element to it as well, which I think is not to be overlooked. Um, as I've been, I've attended your <laughs> classes um, and workshops, and I, I think it is an element that it can often be overlooked. And it's how you're able to apply that strength in your own body to make it look graceful. But there's a huge foundation of strength actually there, which is, I'm assuming, some of the reasons you're able to do what you can do when you're acrobatics and flips and etc etc but it is that by only you knowing your your own body yourself the relationship that you have with your body you know what it's capable of doing you've interacted with it and and you have your own vocabulary so now you're able to use that vocabulary to its full potential well there's certainly an element of if we go back to the image of the wild horse the more you work respectfully with that wild, wild horse inside you, the more you get to tame it. And so you will be able to know what you can do with as you ride the horse and where the limits are and what can be done in certain circumstances, for instance. So it's very interesting for me, if, if I had to get a bit nerdy for two seconds, um, to see the difference in the shapes I can do if I perform acrobatic movements, if I have shoes on or not or if I am on the soft floor or not. And straight away, my wild horse or my brain is gonna change something in the way my technique 
manifest itself to protect me just because it dang knows well that without my shoes and on a very hard floor like concrete uh, my chances of injury are just higher so my shape would just go sideways and i just have to deal with that mm-hmm. instead of chasing perfect form and again trying to force the wild horse and again i have to ask myself also why do i want perfect form uh even on the hard floor why is that desirable is it worth the work that's going to be implied by me working with my subconscious and taming it again instead of just noticing huh this is not happening there does it matter yes no what is it saying about my own trauma history for instance Hmm. that's also something very interesting um the other thing i suppose when you move on the floor this practice is also about the strength element I've never been able to train strength for strength's sake. And I really don't think there's anything wrong with it at all. And it's beautiful when you can get, when you can feel the reward from it. Um, But training, and so I would not put the label holistic or more well-rounded. I think this is just being righteous and throwing rocks at other practices which are just as relevant. And on the contrary, I think they complement each other. But what I do notice then is whenever my subconscious is re- or my brain or is refusing something that I absolutely wanted to do, then pausing there and asking myself, is there a strength element that could complement that? So let's say I'm trying to perform bridges and this kind of elbow levers, which are called uh, QDRs in the modern movement culture word. These are heavy on the shoulders, heavy on the wrist, heavy on the elbows. They imply some form of internal rotation of the shoulders, which my brain is not always happy with. And that's the case of many of my students as well. And instead of doing them again and again and again until it starts to be pinching my shoulders, I actually take note of when I improvise what happens, why am I avoiding this? And then I can revisit that part through a very linear and structured strength plan. And the goal of it being, yes, I'm gonna get stronger in that region of my body, in that body part, but I'm also gonna prove to myself at a very deep level that this is safe, which is the essence of mobility training these days. And I think there's value in applying that mindset into skill training. Mm -hmm. You are not able to do that, not because you're weak, And getting strong is not the one answer to that problem, but getting strong and in the process, proving to you or subconscious that this is a safe thing to do, despite the volume, is what you could be after. So this is where I think any movement practice has the potential to become a tool for diagnosis and self-inquiry and exploration yeah and this is the path i'm trying to take all of my students uh down to because this is where the the juice is this is where the the wealth is not just movement for movement's sake but what does it say about you and what can you do with it now yeah but obviously it's a rabbit hole yes yeah it's one of the reasons i named my podcast trust your body um and to me it was trust your body because it actually has the answers if we choose to go and seek them out um, maybe not the ones you want to hear though exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
um, and there's a almost a level of acceptance of having to accept where you are in your journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember when I started to learn handstands many years ago, and we used to train together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was unable to hold myself at a forty-five degree angle against the wall without my back hurting, and it just felt like I was being squashed. And I had to accept that. But I also wanted to prove to myself that I was capable of doing it. I actually had to take a step back and start wondering and, and questioning why. And this was part of the journey I went on with my own body. And part of that process was I had to accept that I couldn't do it the way I was doing it. But it didn't mean I couldn't do it. I just had to find a different way. Mm-hmm. So I did have to enter into self-inquiry and enter into investigation. And, you know, it wasn't a, a short process. It was long. But the value and what it taught me was that eventually I came out to the other end with a, you know, a quite aesthetically pleasing handstand. Not that I ever trained for, for that shape. It was just that was the result of me putting the work in. But I remember the time specifically when pushing it to try and make it happen. And I could see the wild horse saying, no, it ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then I went again and again and again and repeated that process until I got to a point where I had to flip it and say what am I not doing what haven't I done what haven't I I tried to do I think therein lies where the difficulty is for lots of people is to have to accept that first and where it's people like yourself who are educator and teacher and are, are adding those elements of reframing to people's lives actually provides an opportunity for people to start to question things and then you can start to question their own body and actually say, well, it's okay if I don't have a handstand today, mm-hmm. but I can have one in a year's time if I want to. And I, I think it's something I've seen in your practice as a teacher and educator that you actually, it's at the forefront of your teaching. Whereas in other practices, it may not be there. Not that it's their fault. It's just how they frame their work. But that's obviously something that you have learned. Um, and I'm wondering, is there lessons you have learned from your body that's kind of given you the nudge to say do more of this stuff integrate that because of the benefits it has in people's lives well i think we all start there by self-experimenting and making mistakes that are too big to not notice so i got injured in the process of pushing through i got frustrated i got i harmed my social life and relationships because i was so obsessed with movement goals i mean i've been there done that um because this is the the mainstream idea that's being pushed and and communicated about on social media mainly. But even in, when you go and train, like I remember I started with capoeira and then circus. And, and despite being, we were like, it's, this is not the 18th century, but people were still thinking that there's this whole do like me mentality. And that's why I became a teacher in the first place. Because all the teachers, not all the teachers, but many teachers I have encountered would lead you to believe that if you were not successful, if you were not able to do what they were doing, then you were doing something wrong. Then you had to do it more. And so I ended up training so much and chasing volume because I allowed the environment to make me believe this is on me. But I allowed the environment to make me believe that... I was not doing things right. So I spent hours studying and I went to that workshop, spent all my money, didn't uh, see my friends and family as much as, as I could have, 
for what? Just to realize. And I mean, that's the lesson you have to, that's the, the journey you have to go through to take the lessons on board and then start to experiment with other people. Suggest, see, this is how a method is being developed. You experiment on yourself, you, see, you realize all the lessons that you wish you could have told your younger self. And then you try to suggest them to other people and you see them, you see that blossoming in them and you realize that you are onto something. Mm -hmm. But yes, no, obviously my journey was uh, reeled with, uh, the, very, the, the two main things would have been a shorter injury, which you are well aware of. And if I have to simplify things, basically I was made to believe that I could not do a handspring because I didn't have a proper bridge and therefore I let partners overstretch my shoulders because I thought that stretching, and I didn't know any better, but I didn't question it either. So I thought that stretching would be the answer. And nowadays, whenever people come to my workshops and they're like, oh, do you have any kind of partner stretching you could advise uh, or recommend us? I'm like, uh, why? why do you think this is the vehicle towards your progress? And I also say, even more importantly, at the beginning of each workshop, I don't want you to take anything I say for granted. I want you to question me. I've worked hard to get where I am at and to, for, and to present you with the frames I have developed. However, you should never take what I'm saying for gospel because it's not. It's the moment when you relinquish your critical thinking by going to a guru that you expose yourself to injury. Mm -hmm. So you have to ask me why. And it makes me a better teacher too. Yeah. By having people question me, I make sure that everything I teach is as streamlined as possible and as true as possible. That it's not just a, an induction reasoning where something has worked for me and then I'm assuming that this will work for everybody else. This is precisely what the do like I do approach is about and this is precisely what I have been criticizing over the years and why I became a teacher in the first place. So in order for me to widen the box, because I'm not sure anyone can step outside of the box they operate in, but in order for me to widen the edges of the box I am in and to, be, to widen my horizons, I constantly need to be challenged and I encourage not just for, well, I encourage my students to do that even more so because I want them to be critical thinkers in the way they approach trainings. Like it's like very smart people can be very critical in many areas of their lives, but then when it comes to training, they just want to drop that on the side and ask the coach, tell me what to do. And it's absolutely fine, but I want a second question to follow that. And the second question is, why? Why do I need to go against the wall and hold it on my one hand? Why cannot? Why can I not freestand already? Why can I not get that fancy move I really want to learn? Why do you get me to do these boring drills on the side? Why am I not strong? Just all. Why are you sure that I shouldn't uh, squeeze my engage my core to hold my handstand? No. <laughs> and then and then we have a discussion about it, and the discussion leads to a self inquiry as much as possible. Mm. It's not just me proving that I'm right. I'm asking them to find the answers in themselves. And that's where and that's where then they get to reframe it for themselves, find their put their own words on it, and then we can have an interesting conversation. And this is where progress is to be made in a smart way. Yeah. I love that. There's it's very we're very similar in how the approach of our work is, even though it's it's different work. 
I would say at least once or, or not more a week I'm asked about footwear or orthotics mm-hmm. and I have the same response to, to every single person my response is always ask your body it will show you I decided to make a video and the video actually documents of how you can move your own body and how you can actually stand in shoes or orthotics and move your body again in a questioning format or self-inquiry and it will actually show you and what I love so much about it is that every single person can apply it for free and the answer will come from within and you can also look in the mirror and you'll see the exact same thing and it will actually show you and I see movement as a way of our body speaking or a way of letting it have it say that's why I love movement so much because it's it's um you can see it you can feel it you can experience it you can explore it you can engage with it and it has all of these components to it so I sometimes feel like we're doing people a disservice if we don't bring them back to this self-inquiry and this education and bring them back into this process because I I, I always wonder if someone were to come out of it the other end of a process and um, whether it's working with me whether it's an educational process or whether it's learning to hands on or wherever it may be and they come out the other end they have the goal they want but they don't have the tools so they, they, I can do a handstand, but I don't understand why the components work. Or I, I'm pain-free, but I don't know why. Or whatever it may be in relation to their, to their body or how they work. And the, the tools that they gather along the way are the tools that reinforce their, their foundation and their knowledge so that they can actually carry along with them. And, and you're really trying to feed that into your work. I would say, yes, I'd... At best, we may, and when I say we, I mean any kind of instructor or educator out there, we may be doing them a disservice because they will miss the tools that they would have found, the nuggets they would have found along the way if they had engaged in that self-inquiry process. And so by giving all the answers already, we're not allowing them to develop that. And these nuggets, these tools may well be useful for something else than the goal they were pursuing in the first place. But that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is I think that anyone, no matter how well intentioned they are, can become dogmatic. It's dishonest intellectually to think that even though you're doing your best not to be dogmatic, if you preach uh, what you say as being the one truth, because it worked so well for you and so many of your students, you are being dogmatic. Mm. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, stats don't even apply here. We don't have the numbers to do that, and nor the control groups to test that properly. So we have to, in movement, at the very least, recognize that you may have an informed opinion upon what works, but the most honest approach to take from there as an educator as an instructor is to use that as a cue for the student the the individual to self-explore and to come back to you with their own version of the same truth otherwise i'm just dismissing the fast dismissing the fact that no matter how many books and podcasts on psychology i consume i I'm riddled with biases. I'm, I can work all my life about that. Even the psych, I mean, even if you are a therapist, you are. And that's one of the things they say actually in therapy. Like they, they try not to project 
And whenever they are, they will take a pause if they're good therapists and say, oh, actually here, I am merging my own opinions with what's happening. I don't have the perspective to hold the space anymore. We have to take a pause. And, and I think that's honest and, and so valuable. And I've learned a lot of what I'm doing through therapy myself. And I think that not applying this when you teach someone is really being dishonest. Mm. And not necessarily in a conscious way. Again, I'm not throwing any rocks because I would have done that probably 10 years ago. It's Again, people don't know any better yet. Yet. Yeah. And everyone on their own journey. Yeah, very true. For, let's say, the average Joe, if they don't come across people who are teachers and ed- educators, where do those people start? That's a good question. It almost feels like you need a spark to start questioning the framework you've been operating in all these years. And I'm I'm afraid to... My first answer would be some form of a negative experience. And it can be just frustration because you f- you understand that you are not getting the progress you want and that something therefore is not working. But usually, unfortunately, it's way more traumatic than that. Mm. Um, And that's only when you go through that, that you can resonate with the person saying, oh, I know better. I've been there too. This is another way of looking at things. I I was um, wondering what my own response to that would be. Because I I too went almost be a negative negative experience first in order to be a catalyst to, to... send someone on their journey and go start searching um yeah you answered it well though. you answered it well <laughs> well i suppose isn't that what they say in cycle in philosophy as well um but there's that that if you do not experience the bad then you don't know what the good is mm. that the answers are empty if you haven't gone through the journey yourself yeah and obviously you could have a very long debate with people well 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 better read than i am in these topics but i do feel that there's an element of truth there does it mean that you have to go through a powerful trauma to progress when it comes to something as pedestrian as movement i hope not i hope not and i think this is where the power of analogy lies where by over in a good way, by simplifying uh, what's happening, you can resonate with people and they can stop early on that path towards the negative experience. And so that's not the mission, but that's part of the goal, certainly. Mm-hmm. Being able to catch them soon. Yeah. Not because you know better, not because you're righteous, but because you want to invite them down that path of self-inquiry that will hopefully prevent them from injuring themselves when it comes to mm. movement. But when it comes to relationship, then going through a car crash, really, yeah. like it's the same. Yeah, all the other elements of life. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. Um, tell me, where can people find you on social media? So mainly, well, I'm trying to be... I'm trying to be as uh, present as possible, humanly possible, on the different social platforms, although TikTok still hasn't got me. <laughs> so I'd say the best 
uh, but maybe one day I will just give in. The best way would be to go on my website, which is www.vincentvis, all together, visvis.com. And there you have the different social media links. That would be also Vincent underscore this on Instagram. Super. And I will also post your links in the show notes as well. Um, because you have a couple of online courses as well that people can avail of if they want to go and learn from you um, and delve into the work that you do, uh, which I think is hugely valuable. So I will make sure to put that on the notes as well. Okay. And last question before we leave. What one change would you like to see in the world? I would say maybe surprisingly but I would say using this analogy or this understanding that there's so much that outside that is outside of our awareness and that can be so valuable for us to make better decisions and yet we pay so little attention to it and there's so many mediums to get there to understand this relationship in the first place between what you're aware of and what you're not aware of to understand the signals the body is sending to go back to what we've been talking about movement is one meditation is one going to therapy through therapy is one uh, doing and the mean motion work is one and they can complement each other beautifully and there's so many others and then applying that to what really matters i mean everything that's body related matters but there is so much more than movement and i think whatever i do with movement is a way to catalyze a change in other areas of your life that matter way more and i really think that movement can matter a big time absolutely but do find a, a change in the world would be, yeah, find the medium that resonates with you. Find the vehicle that resonates with you and let it unravel, let it unfold. Uh, and then rip the, like, enjoy the journey because it's going to be a roller coaster. But, and then apply what you learn with anything that matters to you. Wonderful. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. Vincent Viss, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Trust Your Body podcast. If you found the episode valuable, please share with friends and family and please leave us a review on iTunes. It would be awesome if you could take a screen cap and tag me on Instagram at Anthony underscore Claffy. Again, thank you so much. And remember, no one knows your body better than you. Trust it. <laughs>